Scripture together to the book of Ecclesiastes. Psalms, uh, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. We're going to read from chapter 3. I think it's page 670 in your pew Bibles. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 1. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to search and a time to give up, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What do workers gain from their toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. Amen. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. And help us, Father, to be doers of the Word, not just hearers. Help us to live in the light of your truth. In Christ's name and for Christ's sake, we pray. Amen. Well, I would like us to dip our toes, as it were, in the waters of Ecclesiastes this morning. Uh, Ecclesiastes is different from most books of the Bible. It's different and it's difficult. It's difficult to understand and it can be difficult to apply to our lives, but it's there for a reason. Uh, We looked at the last two prayer meetings uh, at the armor of God from Ephesians chapter 6. The apostle Paul encourages us, exhorts us to 
to, to pick up our armor, to take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And so Ecclesiastes is part of our armor, it is part of our arsenal, it is a weapon to help us to fight the good fight well. And so we shouldn't hide away from it, we should learn to study it and to learn from it and to be encouraged and challenged by it. The difficulty we come to as we begin to read this book is that it seems so out of sync with so many other books of the Bible. It seems very downbeat, even depressing at times. The author introduces himself as the teacher or the preacher, depending on your translation. He is a son of David, the king of Jerusalem, and obviously he is a bit of a philosopher. So most Christians throughout the history of the church have assumed that the author is Solomon. Whoever he is, he opens this letter with these words. You can turn back if you're in chapter 3 to the, the first chapter. He says, the words of the teacher, chapter 1, verse 1, son of David, king of Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Well, not only does that seem a bit depressing, it seems to contradict what other books of the Bible tell us. Surely Scripture tells us that life is not meaningless, that God has created us for a purpose, that He has a plan, that there is a reason. And if it is Solomon who writes Ecclesiastes, then he seems to contradict what he himself says elsewhere. So in Proverbs, Solomon says, blessed or happy are those who find wisdom, those who gain understanding. And yet in Ecclesiastes, verse 18 of chapter 1, he says, in much wisdom is much grief, and he that increases in knowledge increases in sorrow. How are we to take that? How are we to interpret that? How do we handle Ecclesiastes? Well, some Christians say that the only way to understand Ecclesiastes and to benefit from it is to take it as a letter about life without God, like a letter written on the assumption that God doesn't exist, to show us how empty and how vain and how hopeless that life would be were we to live it. Life without God is meaningless. Without God, all is vanity. Without God, all our work in the end amounts to nothing. Without God, more knowledge is just more sorrow. The letter uses the phrase, under the sun, uh, several times, and a lot of people say, well, that means life lived without reference to the God who exists above the sun. So, I think it is beyond doubt 
that Ecclesiastes does do that for us. It does present to us in the clearest terms how hopeless and how meaningless life is without God. Preacher tells us in verse 10 and 11 of chapter 1 that he denied himself no pleasure, more evidence here that this may have been Solomon writing. And yet still this doesn't offer to him the satisfaction that he desires. So verse 10 of chapter 1, I desired myself nothing. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. So there's some satisfaction for a moment, but then verse 11, yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Solomon sounds to me there like Robbie Williams. I'm sure that's a phrase that you you haven't heard before, but I once heard Robbie Williams interviewed, and he was talking about a time of real sadness and real struggle in his life, and he said the problem was that he had worked all his life to get to the top. He had made all of these sacrifices. He had worked so hard with that one goal in mind. And in his words, he said, when I got to the top, I found there was nothing there. He, he, he got the fame. He got the celebrity. He got the money. He got the success. He got the opportunity to do that which he loved to do. He got all of these things. He got to the very top And he found there was nothing there. He found emptiness. Ecclesiastes reminds us of the pointlessness of life lived without God. Success, money, pleasure, they satisfy to an extent and for a time, but eventually they leave us feeling empty. They promise so much, and yet they deliver so little. And Ecclesiastes lays that truth bare before us. But it does more than just that. It acknowledges the brokenness of the world in which we live. We all have this sense within us that something is wrong, that this is not the way the world was made to be. This is not the way the world was meant to be. We see suffering and injustice and loss and grief and death and sorrow and something deep inside us says, this isn't right. It's unnatural. We work and earn but never feel fully satisfied. We move through the stages and the seasons of life, always thinking that the next one will bring satisfaction. So Grace is at nursery. She can't wait till she's at school. When she's at school, she'll get to the point where she's desperate to get to secondary school. Then she'll be desperate to get out of school and to experience freedom. She'll get out of school, maybe go to university, maybe get a job. When she's working, she'll think, oh, if only I could get to retirement, then I would be happy. 
maybe I'll move away from grace, but, you know, we, we, we grow up and we think, if only I could get a boyfriend, if only I could get a girlfriend, then I'd be truly happy. And get a girlfriend, and we think, if only we could get married, then we'd be truly happy. And we get married, and we think, if only we could have children, we'd be truly happy. If we get children, we think, if only we could get rid of the children, we'd be truly happy. And it's always the next, you know, we always think that fulfillment will come. It's just, just outside our reach, just outside our grasp. But we never quite seem to find it. And Ecclesiastes presents to us the reality that the world is, is slightly off. There's something slightly wrong. There's a longing within that the world never seems able to provide for us, to give to us. And the Bible doesn't hide from these questions or these thoughts or these feelings in the way that sometimes some of us Christians do. Ecclesiastes encourages us to face the complexity of life. So Solomon is actually right, both in Proverbs and in Ecclesiastes. He's right in Proverbs when he says that there is happiness, there is blessedness and wisdom. But he's also right to, to tell us that there is a sorrow that comes from refusing to bury our heads in the sand. You know, when we, when we face up to the reality of our own uh, mortality or the reality of the brokenness of the world around us, the reality of our own brokenness, we want to grow up and to learn. We don't want to be like Peter Pan, the child who never grew up. And yet to grow up means to discover some things which are hard, which are tough, which will bring sorrow. And a lot of people in the world in which we live are terrified of that sorrow. A lot of people do all that they can to keep their heads in the sand, to keep themselves so busy that they don't have to think about life and about death. Any free time that is spent or is, is available to be spent is spent staring at a screen or indulging in even less healthy distractions because we don't want to face the big questions of life that really matter. And Ecclesiastes is a reminder that the Bible can handle these questions. The Bible can handle the brokenness and the complexity of life in this fallen world. And I think that is a very good and helpful and healthy thing. Ecclesiastes gives a voice to how we feel sometimes, even as Christians in this world. Just when we think we've got it all worked out, the rug is pulled from underneath us. We find ourselves falling. We don't know where we are anymore. You know, we've got all of our children's talk PowerPoint slides in the perfect order, or so we think, and then suddenly it's all a mess. That's life, isn't it, sometimes? We think it's all in place. We think we've got it sorted, and then suddenly... It's all gone horribly wrong. Well, Ecclesiastes reminds us that it's okay. It reminds us that God knows. This is a book breathed out by God, and we can say with certainty that He is no naive God. I hope you're glad that the Bible can handle 
real life. It's not just a collection of twee sound bites, quotes for us to put up on Facebook. Rather, it's a book that is forged in the fire of real life in this broken world. And yet, even though this world is a broken world, even although we have experienced the reality of the fall, even although things seem so random and chaotic at times, all of which is acknowledged in Ecclesiastes, still we affirm that God is here. Still we affirm that God is in control. He has not abandoned the world that He has made nor has he abandoned the throne in which he sits. He still rules and reigns. And I believe that we can still see that even in Ecclesiastes. The passage we read from chapter 3 captures something of that, surely. I've been in a position on more than one occasion where someone has been going through a season of deep, deep suffering. And they have asked me to read the words that we read this morning from Ecclesiastes chapter 3. They've sought comfort in these words. I think there is in this poem the assurance that it's not all chaotic, that it's not all random, that it's not all chance. The world might be broken, but there is still a rhythm to the world. There are still rules which govern the way that the world works. There is still some semblance of order that we can see if we have eyes to recognize it. There is still the fingerprint of the God who made the world in His creation, broken as it is. The fingerprint of God has not been wiped clean from the world. He is the one who brings order from chaos. He orders even time itself. We see that in the, uh, the account of creation in Genesis. He separates light from dark, dark day from night, and divides the week up into seven days. He puts everything in its right time and place and space. And I think that reality is captured in the rhythm of the poem in Ecclesiastes 3 itself. Even if you don't look at the meaning of the words for a moment, just reading it, just that pattern, that sound, that rhythm, captures something of the rhythm of the days and the weeks and the months and the seasons. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, 
time for war and a time for peace. It's not all random. It's not chaos. There is a God-given rhythm to the way that the world works and to life itself. There is a proper time for things to happen. Despite the fall, despite the brokenness of the world, despite uh, global warming and all these things that we hear about, we still have the seasons. We're in autumn now, but winter will come, and then spring, and then summer. A reminder that God is the God of order. I suppose there is a danger that we miss these things in the world in which we live. None of us are farmers, as far as I'm aware. We sang last week in Harvest Sunday, we plow the fields and scatter, but the reality is we personally don't plow the fields and scatter. We trust in Tesco, don't we? Trust in Tesco to provide us with whatever foods we want from anywhere around the world, whenever we want it, no matter what season we find ourselves in. We have electric lights so we can turn the day into night and the night into day if we so choose. Our shops stay open on Sundays, as do our places of work. We can lose all sense of the rhythm and the rest that God has put in place for us. We can exhaust ourselves if we choose. Our bodies and our lives are designed to recognize the rhythms that God has put in place, the times to work and the times to rest, the seasons of life. And so these verses ought to remind us of the foolishness of living our lives as if we are able to ignore the created order. God has created us. He has created you, and He has created the world in which we live. And our lives ought to recognize the way in which God has created us. The world, uh, which is ignorant of God and the ways of God, it might live in a way which just runs itself into the ground, which ignores the seasons of life, the, the rhythm of the days. But we ought to be different. We ought to stand apart as we live wisely and well. These verses also remind us that there is beauty in all of these seasons. He has made everything, verse 11, beautiful in its time. I've not done very well, I confess, at seeing the autumnal beauty around me recently. I mentioned Tesco. I was with my mum outside Tesco recently, and it was fairly wet and windy, and we were both looking at the same thing. So we looked at the trees. And what I see are the trees being blown about with the wind. I see the leaves heavy with the rain on them, dripping down. I'm thinking, this is terrible. It's cold. I'm wet. This is awful. My mum is looking at the same scene, the same trees. And she says to me, look at the colors in those leaves. Aren't they beautiful? And I'm, I'm looking at crazy mom. Then I look at the leaves and I think, actually, they are. <laughs> they are beautiful. I just didn't have eyes to see it, to recognize it. And then the next of my uh, confessions, a couple of days later, I'm walking home on a wee back road in Airdrie. The rain is pouring down again, and there's a wee uh, lady on, on, on the pavement in front of me. My, um, my estimate would be 
maybe mid to late 80s. And uh, she's there in the pouring rain, about to, to go into her car, the driver's seat of her car. I'm thinking, good for you. Uh, she's got her rainmate on with the hood over her rainmate. And she's just standing with her hand on the door, looking in my direction. I'm thinking, why is she, why is she not going into her car? She'll be getting soaking. And uh, I get closer and closer, and it begins to dawn on me to my shame. The, re the reason she's standing in the rain, not opening the door of her car, is because she's waiting for me to pass. It's a narrow pavement. She knows that when she opens the door, I won't be able to get past. past. So she's, she's waiting for me to get past before she opens the door of her car and gets in. And she looks at me and she says, lovely weather, isn't it? And, and I laugh and I say, oh, glorious. And uh, just as I walk past and thank her, uh, feeling thoroughly ashamed of myself, she says to me, still, we need the rain. And I thought, <laughs> I felt so ashamed. I thought, that, you know, she's right. We need the rain. I'm walking along here miserable, grumpy, because I'm, I'm wet as I make my way to my lovely warm house. But actually, I'm oblivious to the fact that the rain is a good thing. We need the rain. It's the rain that makes our country so green and so beautiful and so, so lush. And uh, this, this wee lady on, on this back street in Airdrie, uh, just like my mum was, she, her eyes are open to see the goodness in the rain, but my eyes don't recognize it. And so we, we ought to take the opportunity at times just to ask ourselves that question, that diagnostic question, do I have eyes to see the beauty that God has placed all around me? To see the beauty of the seasons. We might prefer summer, we might prefer spring, but we ought to see the beauty of autumn, the beauty of winter when it comes. God has made everything beautiful in its time. And we should be the people who see that, who recognize that, and who are filled with gratitude and with joy and with praise for the beauty that we see all around us. He has made everything beautiful in its time. There is a season for everything under the sun. And that goes for the seasons of our lives as well. There is beauty in every season of the lives that we live. We have a temptation, as I said earlier, to always think that the next season will be the one that we need to get to. Or maybe as we get older, maybe we, we look back the way instead and we think, oh, I wish I was back in my youth. If I was in that season of life, I would be happy, but this season of life is terrible. No, there is beauty in, in all of the seasons of our lives. The only question is, do we have eyes to recognize that beauty and to thank Him for it? So Ecclesiastes uh, 3 affirms that there is God-given rhythm to life. There is beauty in all of the seasons, and that God is sovereign over all these seasons. All of the extremes and everything in between. So in that poem, you have uh, two sets of seven. Seven is the number of perfection, the number of completeness or fullness. Uh, so verses 2 to 8. Two sets of seven extremes. So you have birth and death. You have uh, tearing down, building up. You, you have war and peace, love and hate, all these extremes. And everything within those extremes is, is, is included there. So you, you have everything. This is a poetic way of saying 
everything, all of the extremes of life, all of the seasons of life, God is sovereign over all of them, from birth to death, in joy and sorrow, war and peace. He is in control. He is the Lord of time and of eternity and all of life. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the sun. Why? Because God has set it so. God is the one who sets the proper seasons for all of the activities of life. He is the one who has made everything beautiful in its proper time and place and space. And therefore, we ought to work when it's time to work and enjoy the fruit of our labor as a gift from God who gives us the means and the opportunity to work. And we ought to rest when it's time to rest. We ought to refuse to ignore the going down of the sun or the weekly Sabbath rest or even the summer holidays. God has made everything beautiful in its time. He is still in control. We ought to see His goodness in the world around us and in all of the seasons of life. There's one more thing as I come to a conclusion. One more thing that Ecclesiastes does in showing us that there is a deeper hunger that nothing in this world can really satisfy. Success, power, pleasure, experience, entertainment, in showing us that these will never give us that peace and that purpose that we are created to look for and to long for. Uh, It points us to Jesus. Verse 11 of chapter 3, He has set eternity in the human heart. Scripture makes clear that this world has been broken by sin, but God has stepped into the world in Christ. He stepped into the world to experience its brokenness Himself. We have no naive God. He experienced the harsh realities of life in this broken world, in the life that He lived, and in the death that He died for us. He conquered sin and death as He was raised triumphant and victorious, and He ever lives to be for us the bread of life, the bread which satisfies our hungry souls fully and forever. It is in Him that we find the fulfilling life and the eternal rest that we were created to long for. God has not made us with a hunger that can never be satisfied. He loves us. Why would He do such a thing? He has created us with a hunger that should show us our need of Jesus, the coming King and His coming kingdom. C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity, if I find myself with a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was created for another world. And so we look for that day when Jesus will come again to make all things new. 
I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. Amen. When the teacher says, meaningless, everything is meaningless under the sun, we don't sink into despair. No, we say, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, come and make all things new. So we rejoice 